I trust and, and hope that um, you know, those of you who came for that first meeting with, with Troy from Northwest uh, Christian University yesterday, that that went well. And uh, as you all did some thinking and talking about the, the future of this congregation, I wasn't here, obviously, and one of the reasons that Pam and I, and, and I talked with Gene about it afterwards, thought it'd be best for us not to be here was that it would hopefully allow everyone who was here to, to freely speak their minds without worrying about, oh, if I say we need to do this, is Derek going to think that he been, has been doing that? Because it might be true or something like that. I want you all to worry about being able to not speak freely with something you think, well, we don't want to hurt Derek's feelings or anything like that. And I was thinking about that, and I was reminded of a story about a young pastor who was making his farewell visits to his congregation before he was going to be moving on to another church. And he was at the home of one elderly lady, and he carefully explained why he was leaving and everything, and the woman sighed deeply, and she said, well, we'll never have another minister as good as you've been. And the young man, he kind of blushed, and he scuffed his feet on the floor. He did the whole, ah, shucks, you know, thing, and he says, oh, I'm sure your next pastor will be excellent. And the woman shook her head with determination. She said, you just don't understand. I've been here through five pastors, and each one has been worse than the last. <clears throat> now, knowing the people that make up this congregation, and knowing the elders who lead it, and the staff who work here, I am certain that you will not have to settle for someone who's not even as good as me. And when the church flourishes in the next few years, and hopefully as it grows and has the ability to do more ministry in the Newport and Toledo area, and more mission support and everything like that, if, 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 I need to, if, if me accepting that is a hit to my ego, I'm willing to take that and let that happen. I can honestly say that if the next guy that you get is able to help this congregation become healthier and be more of a light for Jesus in this community, then no one will be happier about it than I. With that ultimate hope in mind, I decided to spend my last four Sundays here doing some re-emphasizing of some themes that have become very important to me in, in the recent years. And my hope is that in the coming months and years, as changes come to this congregation, because things are going to change and, and some things need to change, a shakeup is needed, maybe some of you, you know, when you're uncomfortable with some of the changes and, and you're kind of maybe tempted to, to think that it'd be best if, if nothing ever changed in this church. Maybe some of you, are that when you get to thinking like that, you'll remember some of the things that I highlighted in my last month here, and you'll realize that the big picture for the follower of Jesus has very little to do with us being comfortable in the church of our choosing. Jesus didn't die so we could come and be happy and not be challenged and be comfortable here in all aspects. Last Sunday, I, I hope that I challenge you to think about your motivation uh, as a follower of Jesus. Ultimately, why do you follow Jesus? I, I, I would say at the end, it should not simply be a question of, a, of wanting to go to heaven and, and, and wanting to avoid hell. It should, be, it should be deeper than that. And I won't take the time to really review that message now, but there are audio CDs out in front there by the door, and you can find that message on the church's website. You can listen to it online. Today, I want to talk about about rules, about obeying them, about breaking them, about ignoring them, about living by them, all this kind of stuff. And I realized a funny thing when I was preparing for this message. Uh, well, I knew it before, but it really came into focus. And that is, for most of my life, I've been someone who's pretty happy keeping the rules. I mean, 
I never got into much trouble growing up. I wasn't perfect by any means, but I never felt a, a general need to rebel like some of my friends did. I never felt the need to break a school rule just for the sake of saying, yeah, I stuck it to the man. I broke that rule. You know, that's how I roll. I just, I'm just uh, chaotic and, and, uh, and anarchistic and everything like that. I never had a problem in really obeying the rules that my parents had at home or, or rules at work. And it, and it just wasn't in my nature to challenge the rules, even if I thought that a certain rule might just be stupid. But by most people's way of thinking, that made me a pretty good kid. And you know, good children, good people, good neighbors, good, good employees, good co-workers, they all have a certain level of respect for living by the rules of a polite society. It's the Christian way to be, as we might think. You know, according to many people's way of thinking, what does a good Christian person do? Well, they don't rock the boat. They live by the rules. The thing is, Jesus was a rule breaker. And I've said before that he was a rebel. And that is true, but he wasn't the kind of person who broke the rules or rebelled against the way they do things just to spite people or just to, to hurt another person. Jesus was no jerk. However, Jesus had no use for arbitrary rules or rules that did no good or worse yet, rules that actually did harm as opposed to doing any good. You'll see what I mean in, in today's Bible passage. So I'm going to read from, from Matthew chapter 12, and there should be a slide on that. Yes, there is success. All right. We'll take the little victory some Sundays. So <clears throat> Matthew chapter 12, at about that time, Jesus was walking through some grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, so they began breaking off some heads of grain and eating them. But some Pharisees saw them do it and protested, Look, your disciples are breaking the law by harvesting grain on a Sabbath. Jesus said to them, Haven't you read in the scriptures what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He went into the house of God, and he and his companions broke the law by eating the sacred loaves of bread that only priests were allowed to eat. And haven't you read in the law of Moses that the priests on duty in the temple may work on a Sabbath? I tell you, there is one here who is even greater than the temple. But you would not have condemned my innocent disciples if you knew the meaning of this scripture. I want you to show mercy, mercy, not offer sacrifices. For the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. When several of us from this church, there was nine of us in a group, uh, went to, including Pam's parents, went to Thailand and Cambodia back in 2012, our border crossing between those two countries was, what do we say, a bit stressful? Is that, is that accurate? It wasn't dangerous or anything like that. But to begin with, the train from northern Thailand, from Chiang Mai, that we had to take back down to Bangkok, it, it started late and it lasted a lot longer than it should have, and it included two bus rides. How, how does a train trip include two bus rides? When there's a problem on the tracks, and they say, okay, everybody off the train, get into the bus for 45 minutes or for two hours, then you get back on the train. They do this in the middle of the night or at 5 o'clock in the morning. That's the way it got. So that happened, and then when we got to, uh, to Bangkok, finally... We took a different train, not 45 minutes after we got in, we took a different train to the Thai-Cambodian border, and this was not a fancy train in the slightest. It was not meant for tourists, it was meant for uh, regular Thai folks who were commuting. And it was hot, and sometimes it was crowded. I know Todd and Ben and I spent a lot of time standing up on that train because there just wasn't any place to, to, to sit. And it was not a horrible situation. It was a, it was a better experience than to ride down from Chiang Mai to Bangkok, definitely, but... 
It was cheap. Oh, that, that, that makes, Gene says, okay, we can forgive everything as long as it was inexpensive, right? So it was cheap. It was a couple, four or five dollars a person or something like that. It was about five or six hour ride. It was supposed to only be four and a half, but if you believe the train schedules in that country, then you just, you, you'll believe anything. So <clears throat> we crossed the border from Aranyapratet, Thailand to Poipet, uh, Cambodia, and there, the guys at the border crossing tried to shake us down in a couple different ways, saying, well, you can't just go get your own ride, and uh, you gotta, you got to get it through us. The police won't let you go. And we finally got into Cambodia, and it's, it's only 8.30 at night or so. The border was almost closed, and this place is just the armpit of, the, of East Asia, where you cross over there. And we had a two-hour taxi ride to the city of Battambang, where we were staying and going to church next morning. So Gene made arrangements for nine of us to take three Toyota Camrys uh, from Poipet to Battambang. And Pam and Emily and I were in one car, and we got a later start than the other two cars since our driver, after each car had to pay the police $10 just for the right of being able to leave and, and leave the city at night because it was, for, it was a safety inspection. But the, the cops were shaking us down, so they shook down each driver for 10 bucks, so we had to give that money up front. After we did that, our driver went and we waited another five or 10 minutes for this Cambodian lady who sat in the back of the car with Pam and Emily. She was also paying him to take her to the city of Battambang. He got a second fare. So we're maybe 10, 15 minutes behind the six people in the other two cars. This was not something that our driver was prepared to live with. So as soon as we got out of town, he got serious about getting us to Battambang. Now picture it. It's a two-lane highway. And it's not a freeway. It's just two lanes. And it's heading out through the Cambodian countryside. And this part of the country doesn't have any electricity other than what they get on solar cells and something like that. So the only lights out there are from other motor vehicles. Otherwise, it's dark out in the countryside. And this guy, um, he's in a Camry, and I'm looking over, and it's in kilometers per hour, miles per hour, and he's cruising at 60 or 65 or 70 miles per hour with the standard speed he's going there. Occasionally, he's hitting 75 miles an hour. But, he, but it was, not to worry, because when his cell phone ring, he'd answered, he'd slow down about 60. So I, I felt very safe. And he came up upon another vehicle, whether it was a truck that you could see around or not, a car or a motorcycle or a tractor or whatever, he'd flash his brights on, just like this. He'd stomp on the accelerator and he'd pull out to pass. You didn't have to look, you know, people were going to make room. It was all right. And he left his blinker on, his left blinker on the entire way. And I kid you not, that is not an exaggeration. When we came to a village, he hit his horn several times. Beep, 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 beep. And dogs and chickens and pedestrians and people on scooters and bicycles would retreat to the shoulders if they wanted to live. Now, you may think I'm exaggerating, but I am not exaggerating. My wife will back me up. She and Emily were back there, and they were like punch drunk with fatigue, and I was just up there. This was a white-knuckle ride from start to finish. I was just up there just praying that we would live. To this guy, the right-of-way belonged to whoever was brave enough to claim it. We blew by another Camry, and I briefly saw Todd sitting in it like he was standing still. And we rolled into Battambang <clears throat> a short one hour and 15 minutes after we left. And most, if you look at the tourist guides, the ride is supposed to take you about two hours. You know, 
Do you ever pass somebody on a freeway or, or somebody have somebody pass you and you think, oh, okay, or you pass somebody, I'm making good time. So then by the time you get into town, they're right behind you. You're thinking, oh, I passed them way back or they passed me and you caught up to them. This was, well, we were a whole 35, 45 minutes ahead of everybody else. We got into town. We rolled into Bottom Bong there. We got to our motel, the wrong motel as it turned out, but we got to our motel. We checked in. We went up to our rooms, put our luggage up there. We came back down and we waited for everyone else to show up. I was dead on my feet, but I still had a hard time going to sleep because our driver was a maniac. And the reason I tell all this is to illustrate that rules are a good thing. As much as we sometimes like to rebel, or put people down who are sticklers for the rules, rules often are what make life livable. Rules, traffic rules specifically, oftentimes keep us alive. I'm pretty sure it was only God that kept us alive that night because the guy that was driving us didn't care one whit about the rules of the road. That is for certain. Well, here in Matthew 12, Jesus is going up against some guys who had the ultimate respect for the rules. Yes, they were in the wrong But let's not pretend that we don't value rules as well and say, oh, well, anybody can be a rule keeper. Well, we like rules too, all right? It's a Saturday, and Jesus and his crew, as usual, are walking through the countryside. Some of the disciples are hungry, and it's close near harvest, or maybe they just harvest and harvested. And along the sides of the fields they're walking, there are wheat fields there. These guys pluck heads of wheat from the sides of the fields. They, they rub the heads in their hands like this. They, you blow out the chaff, and then you pick out the, the hard grains of the wheat and you eat them. Now, I grew up in wheat country in eastern Washington. We used to do this all the time in late summer. Any kid from eastern Washington can, can tell you exactly what was going on there. But this time they're doing that, some Pharisees see them doing this, and they say, hey, Jesus, your boys over there, they're breaking the law. Now, how could something like this be against the law? Now, please tell me that some of you know why. If at least some of you cannot tell me why the Pharisees were upset here, I might as well say a prayer and be done right now because my 15 years have, been, uh, have not come to it. Anybody have a suggestion? All you need to say is one word. Why, was this, why would this be against the law? Work, okay? Work on the Sabbath, right? The Sabbath was the, 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 the holy day of rest, a day dedicated to God. And the primary rule of the Sabbath was no work, right? That's all you need to say. And over the centuries, the Pharisees had debated issue, the issue time and time again, and they had definitively decided that snapping off the head of wheat and, and, and eating the kernels, you know, threshing it in your hand like that, blowing out the chaff, was most definitely, positively, a type of work. Therefore, what these guys were doing was against God's laws. They understood it. Some years ago, years ago, uh, Millard Fuller of Habitat for Humanity was part of a workshop at Pittsburgh Theological Seminary for something like 200 pastors were in attendance. And in their discussion, the assembled pastors quickly pointed to, toward greed and selfishness as a reason the church never had enough money to assist others creatively. They started to think, well, if we had all sorts of money, imagine the great things we could do that would really shake up society, the cities we live in, and things like that. And they said, well, it's because people are generally uh, greedy and, and, and selfish, and that's why they don't do it. And Millard then asked this seemingly innocent question. He said, is it possible for a person to build a house so large that it is sinful in the eyes of God? Raise your hand if you think so. And all 200 of the pastors raised their hands. Well, yes, yes, of course. Okay, said Millard, then can you tell me exactly what size 
the precise square footage a certain house, at which point a certain house becomes sinful to build and then to live in. And there was silence from the pastors. And you could have heard a pin drop. And finally, a small voice, one smart aleck like me, maybe from the back, spoke up and said, when it's bigger than mine, that's when it becomes sinful. Now, that's a revealing story, right? And it has all sorts of implications. But the reason I tell it is that if that crowd that day had been made up of the Pharisees from Jesus' day, they probably would have had an answer as to how big exactly a house could be before it was a sin to build it and live in it. They didn't want to leave anything to chance. That's why they had rules so you could answer stickler questions like that. And, and this is not the only time that these guys get upset with Jesus' breaking of the rules on a Sabbath, but Jesus' response here is, is very interesting. He kind of pointed out that the rules that they accused him, his entourage of breaking weren't actually in the Bible. They were just some men's understanding and interpretation of those rules and application of those rules. God said, don't work on a Sabbath. And they're the ones, they're the jokers who decided that picking a snack was work, you know. But Jesus doesn't go there. Instead, he points to a couple of exceptions to the rules. He reminds them that <clears throat> one time when he was desperate, King David broke the rules and ate some holy bread that was only uh, supposed to be eaten by the priest there in the tabernacle. And then he points out how the priests who serve God do actual work on the Sabbath. <coughs> but that's obviously okay with God because he's the one who tells them to do it. And then he points out that if those two exceptions are valid, it's certainly fine for him and his men to break their rules since Jesus is more important than the temple and the rules that apply to it. Now, this should have been more than enough to shut these guys up, to make them furious with Jesus, but Jesus doesn't stop there. No, then he gets to the real point of the argument. He says, you guys wouldn't be so quick to condemn people because they broke your rules if you really knew your Bibles. And he quotes a message from God found in the Old Testament prophet Hosea's writing, where God had the prophet tell the people, I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. Now, maybe you're beginning to ask yourself, well, where I'm going with this? I mean, we don't keep the Sabbath in any real sense. I did a little bit of work, some chores at home yesterday on Saturday, and I don't have any guilt about it. I don't believe Sunday is a Christian Sabbath, so I'm going to likely do some chores around the home this afternoon. After my nap, of course, because I'm old. So what does Jesus' takedown of the Pharisees have to do with us? Well, you know, we may not freak out about people keeping a Sabbath, but don't we ever, do we ever value our rules and our ideas about what is proper and what is acceptable more than we value the people that we want to apply those rules to? The Pharisees believed that the Sabbath was what was important, but Jesus pointed out in another passage, he says, man was made for the Sabbath, not the other way around. You've got the cart before the horse. They had forgotten that the Sabbath rest was given to people as a gift in a time when weekends hadn't been invented yet and the idea of a vacation was still thousands of years away. Being told that you absolutely must take a day off every week. Well, have you ever had a job where you didn't get a day off in months? You're craving a day off. That's the way their world was before the Sabbath. That's the way most of the world was at that point. People work seven days a week. God introduced the idea of weekends. He said, hey, take Saturdays off, people. I, it's not just a good idea. It's the law. I'm going to make you do it. And your animals and your servants and everybody too, everybody gets a day off. That was a gift. In quoting Hosea, where he says, showing mercy is more important than offering sacrifices, 
Jesus is reminding them that God, God values people above all else, even or especially more than the rules that he has given to those people. My concern in this area is that it seems to be very easy for Christians and pretty much all Christians of every stripe, brand, denomination, tradition, what have you. It's easy for us to become very rule-focused and to forget that Jesus was more than willing to let rules and propriety and conventions of polite society slide quite a little bit if it meant that someone could be influenced towards God, if it meant that God was going to reach out and touch someone's heart and they were going to be changed and there was an, an opportunity for people to show God's love. Jesus said, heck with the rules. We don't need to worry about those rules. What happens is that we worry about what people wear. Well, that skirt is pretty short, or, or that kid's jeans have holes in them. Why should he wear those to church? Or we worry about harmless, unintentional behavior. Hey, you kids, don't play in here. This is God's house. And instead of teaching discipline or respect, which is what we say we're doing and we think we're doing, we're actually sending a message that those people aren't welcome here, unless you can dress nicely. Don't show up. That sign out says, come as you are. Forget about it. It's just for public consumption. It doesn't really work here. God would rather, well, I'm not advocating that we throw out all of our standards or anything like that, but I am saying that if we're not careful, we can be just as hung up on rules and be just as hard-hearted and just as merciless as the Pharisees of Jesus' day were. God would rather have people whose hearts are compassionate people who are caring and forgiving and slow to condemn and quick to forgive, he would rather have those kind of people much more than he would people who are squared away, maybe a little bit uptight rule keepers. Self-discipline and holiness are admirable. In fact, they are both essential. But those are things that we apply to ourselves. I worry about my holiness. I can't worry about Jim's. I can't worry about my wife. She can't worry about mine. Sometimes we have little discussions about that, but that's really the way it works. Those are things that we please ourselves about. To others, we need to show mercy and compassion and empathy. I want to finish with a story that Kevin Miller, a pastor in Wheaton, Illinois, tells. He says, a couple of weeks ago, my wife and daughter and I were in Sarasota, Florida. <clears throat> we were in a Barnes & Noble, and my daughter Ann suddenly passed out and collapsed. She hit her head on the display table or the floor or both because people heard her fall but didn't see it. The EMTs examined her and said, you should really get to a hospital. And the doctors discovered that she had hit her head so hard that she had what they call a subarachnoid hematoma, bleeding on the brain. So they admitted her for further testing and observation. I was so impressed with the nurses there because they were so kind to her. They would lean over the bed and say, how are you doing? And they would take her hand and pat it and say, I hope you feel better, honey. This is the South where they call you honey. And then because it was the Bible Belt, some of them said, I'm praying that you'll get better real soon. It was so sweet. And I thought, man, that's wonderful. But on the other side of the very thin curtain in the room, I noticed a patient who was about Ann's age, but... There was no mercy there. The hospital staff said things like, wake up, wake up, come on now, wake up, talking to her in a rough tone. 
I didn't understand until they started to examine her. She started swearing at them like a sailor. What the blank, you blankety blanks? Why are you so late? Why are you doing this to me, you blank, blank, blank? And I thought, okay, they're trying to help her, and she's swearing at them, so maybe that's why. But the real answer came out the next morning. The doctor came in on his rounds, and instead of coming over to the bed like he'd done with Anne, taking her hand and looking her in the eye and smiling at her, the doctor stood back about five feet from the end of the bed, right in line with my vision, where I'm where I was sitting on the other side of the room. He yelled at the patient, so where does your arm hurt? Show me your arm. Wow, that's quite an abscess. Do you shoot up? Yeah. When was the last time you shot up? Yesterday morning. What are you shooting up with? Heroin. Have you had an HIV test? Okay, we're going to have to get that abscess lanced. And then he left. He did his professional duty, but he showed no mercy. Unsurprisingly, because inside their hearts, the medical professionals are... Are, are thinking, you brought this on yourself. I, I know we're going to see you back here in about three weeks. As it turns out, this was the third time this abscess had been treated. But if Jesus went into that same hospital room, he would lean over and take her hand and say, I'm here for you. I hope you feel better, honey. I'm praying for you. This is what pleases the heart of God. He says, I desire mercy even more than sacrifice. Now, of course, this story illustrates one other thing about showing mercy and and being compassionate. Not only is it what God wants, but it's also much more costly and much more difficult than offering sacrifices, than than keeping the rules. But it is Jesus' way, and we do claim to be his followers, don't we? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you as people who who need the reminders that you gave the Pharisees more than we like to admit. Even though we know we are saved by grace and that it's a free gift from you and that we cannot be good enough, we do get so focused on the rules so much of the time. My prayer is that each of us would remember that you desire mercy and compassion, a soft heart and a kind word and a forgiving spirit much more than you desire us to be sticklers about the rules. And especially help us to not be rule-focused when it comes to others. We want to be disciplined people. We want to love you. We want to glorify you. We want to be holy. But help us to realize that the desire to do that has to come within it. We cannot impose it on others. We can, only, we can only invite them. We can only show them your love, your compassion, your mercy, your care, your kindness.